This is Decentralized, the Decentralized Trials and Research Podcast. We gather here with friends and guests to talk about the latest ways to make research and clinical trials around the world more inclusive, more accessible, more resilient, and more sustainable, all by using decentralized methods. This podcast is recorded live on Clubhouse every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern, on the TGIF DCT show at the Decentralized Trials Club. You can join the live sessions and add your voice every Friday at noon Eastern time with the free Clubhouse app by following the Decentralized Trials Club. And of course, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform to get notified of new episodes. Following the club and subscribing will also help you stay current for any of the bonus content we may drop. And now it's time to decentralize. Absolutely. Now, today's topic is about financial ROI for decentralized trials. Can you tell us how this came up as a topic, Craig, please? Absolutely. Well, um, you know, to, this came up in large part uh, because of a uh, 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 a publication that uh, came out in the media that um, that that there's some new research uh, that is helping to focus on quantifying the ROI of decentralized and uh, we're fortunate to be able to grab the author of uh, the white paper that's associated with that research, Pamela Tenarts, and um, thrilled to welcome Pamela. Welcome you here to Clubhouse and TGFDCT. Thank you for having me. Can you hear me? Yes, Pamela, welcome. Perfect, thanks. Yeah, I'm sorry, it's been a while that I've been on Clubhouse, so my picture seemed to have disappeared. I apologize for that. Um, <laughs> well, we'll just have to picture you based on the, the way we remember you rather than the uh, the letters. Then my, COVID, then my COVID presence, yes, that's a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it's great to have you here, though. And, uh, you know, this is, by the way, this is something I love about, you know, these types of social platforms like these, um, you know, our ability to quickly reach out to friends who are creating great content or importantly, great research um, and be able to bring folks on in, you know, most real time. And so, Pamela, I really appreciate your making time to to jump on with the group today. Um, I know that some of the research is still coming out. Some of it you've already come out and shared. So I'm really looking forward to this, sparking a conversation about this this topic in general and to learning more. But before we get started, Pamela, for the group who may not know you, uh, can you share a little bit about your background um, and the work you do today? Great, yes. So uh, for those of you who don't know me yet, um, nice to meet you. Uh, my name is Pam Tenarts. I am the Chief Science Officer at Medable, a decentralized clinical trials platform. And before that, I spent 10 years at the Clinical Trials Transformation Initiative, where um, you know we were interestingly still th still thinking about the same topics. Obviously, it's like how can we make clinical research uh, more efficient and more quality driven? That was really the goal of the Clinical Trials Transformation initiative, which was co-founded by Duke University and the clinical and, and the Food and Drug Administration. Um, and before that, I'd spent another you know, 20 some years doing various aspects of clinical trials um, from a university setting where I 
ran the European operations of a large cardiovascular clinical trials and did everything from data entry to working with sites to working with national um, investigators. Over time, I've ran a clinical trial site in the United States. I'm originally from Belgium. I, I did those initial trials at the University in Leuven and then um, also ran a clinical trial site here in Florida where I still am. So I've been thinking and and doing different aspects of clinical trials I've been part of a I've been part of a clinical trial um, never been at the FDA I'm sure I've been on an IRB so I've done sort of a little bit of everything um, associated with clinical trials and um, and I've really um, my background is in medicine I'm a physician and then I then got an MBA but it's it's really I would have never thought I would end up here in clinical trials knowing um, um, you know, having a niche of clinical trials. So it's been really fascinating. And I'm I'm really glad to be where we are right now, where we're sort of hopefully on the verge of this um, evidence generation, which is really the business we're in, if you think about it, right? We're in the business of creating evidence around medical products that are in development so we can treat disease and help patients uh, with what they need. So yeah, that's me. And I think we've also brought Andrew up, who's one of the co-leaders of this work here at Medible. Fabulous. And before I, I, I let Andrew introduce himself, I just want to uh, acknowledge and thank Pam for all that work that was done at City. And obviously, the City work continues. It's a great uh, group and a great community, but uh, that decade invested there definitely has a great return and great um, impact on the community. There are so many of us that have been working in this space, uh, not specifically decentralized, but just broadly about trying to see change in this clinical trials ecosystem and your leadership and, and efforts at uh, at city were absolutely material in helping to define what could be done and helping to chart a path for individuals and organizations from all different stakeholders to be able to go down that road so uh, i know i am very grateful for that time and collaboration that uh, that you've invested there pam thank you Thank you. And what I'd like to say is it really was a one of those it takes a village effort. Um, you know, it's we will not move any of this forward unless we work together and collaboration is still runs in my blood, I think. Uh, so it's been really fun to at Medible continue that theme, whether it's collaboration across, you know, different departments at Medible or co continue to collaborate with other people like you at DTRA or you know continue to work with city and dime and all those groups where this is a very big sandbox there's a lot of stuff we need to figure out and we will only win if we do it together well for those that uh, know you from your city days uh, nobody would expect anything less uh, in terms of um, <laughs> Maintaining both, you know, trust and leadership in this space, and and you know that that focus on um, all 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 boats moving the same direction. So uh, thank you for that bit of background, um, Andrew. Welcome to TGIFDCT. Uh, take a moment and introduce yourself for the audience. Excellent. Thanks, Craig. Um, can I just confirm everyone can hear me? Okay, I've been having some trouble with my AirPods. They've not been behaving themselves. Uh, so far, so good. Fantastic, excellent. So thank you very much. Um, great to be back on um, Clubhouse. It's, uh, it's been a while since I've uh, been on the, the TJF piece, the uh, five 
5 p.m. Friday slot has been a challenge for me for the last few weeks, but uh, great to be back listening to everyone. Um, so yeah, my name is Andrew McKinnon. I've been at Medible for a couple of years, uh, but have a, a long um, background across clinical trials. I've been in the industry for just over 20 years now um, in various different capacities, always within kind of clinical operations, clinical um, d uh, d development and, and delivery. Uh, some of a, not a technical background, but more uh, operational uh, focus within uh, drug development. Um, my role at Medible um, is uh, as a, a VP in the, the digital um, and decentralized solutions team um, and uh, as general manager for our e-consent solutions. So I'm very much focused on, on e-consent at this point in time, um, but uh, was thrilled to be involved in this um, particular project uh, that, that Pam just outlined with Tufts looking at the, uh, the, the net present value of, uh, of decentralized trials. Thanks so much, Andrew. Great to have you back here. Amir, I thought to get us going, it would be nice just to uh, start with the origin story and what the intent was for uh, for pursuing this research. Does that sound like a good starting place in your mind? Uh, Amir, I think uh, maybe having some technical issue there. Uh, Pamela, why don't you, let's start off there. Um, so. Uh, some folks may have seen the the article that had come out in the uh, the white paper, but take us back a click. Why why this question? What was it that you were hoping to address in the uh, in the environment by focusing on this particular research topic? Great, and I think that's a really good way to position this. Um, as I mentioned, there are a variety of aspects we need to understand better to move decentralized trials to mainstream, right? To sort of not make it a thing anymore, have it just be the way we do research. Uh, one of the um, aspects that happens when you start with a new technology is that initially it is going to be, you know, you're adding a, a vendor, so to speak, uh, to do your clinical trials. So initially it is a little bit more expensive. So we wanted to see whether that um, investment was worth it. And one of the ways to do that in drug development and why we talked to Tufts, to the Tufts Center for Study of Drug Development um, at the School of Medicine over there at Tufts is that the net present value, expected net present value is the way that in, in development you decide where to put your dollars. And um, so it's an investment today. What will that bring me in the future? And it has to, and it's because in phase two or phase three, not everything leads to regulatory approval. So you have to have other ways to figure out whether something is worth it. And this is how it's done. And one of the things it takes into consideration is the, the drug you're studying, the return on investment you may have, whether your drug is expected to be a blockbuster or, or less of a blockbuster, for example, net present value in, antibi in typical antibiotic drug development is negative. So it's a real thought process to want to invest in that, obviously, as, as a developer of, of, of treatments. And that's probably why you and I and my kids are still taking Augmentin and Amoxicillin and all the drugs that we took when we were kids. So it's a way to figure out what to invest in in the future. And so to what we so the reason we talked, they started this, these discussions before I joined Medible. Um, but in my head, I knew that I was not one of the things I wanted to do. So I was super impressed and happy to see that that actually had just started when I joined Medible um, in March. And the reason I was so excited about this is because we did this work at City 
and I still say we because when I was there, uh, we did this work at City around patient engagement. You know, a couple of years ago, we were sort of at the same thing, like, is it worthwhile engaging with patients when you start talking about what to study and how to study it and what your clinical trial design should look like? And we were really clin patient engagement in the process of creating clinical trials, asking the right question. It wasn't clear at the time whether that was a worthwhile investment. And again, one of those things, again, where all of a sudden you have to spend more money to do something. And our paper in tears, the DIA journal, was the most downloaded paper um, that year in tears. And so we had shown uh, with assumptions that were a lot, lot less evidence based on the assumptions we use in this paper, that there was a positive return on investment. So we were really curious to figure out what are this a new way of doing things would have what the effects would be, what that would mean, because you know it's um, it's it's a good thing to know, so you can convince people that they should try this option. Andrew, you were there earlier than I was. Is there anything else you'd like to add? And I don't know why I have this festive thing next to my my name, but I guess I'm feeling very happy and and excited today. <laughs> so the, your festive icon is somehow you've created a new account on Clubhouse, and that little festive icon is the signal that you're a rookie on Clubhouse. Ah, well, <laughs> so, maybe I am. <laughs> so I, I can probably I can probably solve that mystery, Pam. It's probably most likely you've changed phones. And Clubhouse tags to your phone, not not anything else. So ah, you know that, what? That is true. Okay, mystery uh, solved. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, as the tech <laughs> in residence, I thought I'll, I'll try and stab at solving that one. Okay. Yeah, but nevertheless, I am very excited to be here. So it does reflect how I feel. Well, I'm, I appreciate the festivity. And just just to pull back on something you were mentioning, the NPV work at City that you had mentioned in terms of publication, that was the work on the net present value of patient input and patient insights in the development process? Correct, correct. And, and, and um, it's free for download. So if you want to, want to see how, and we will have a publication about our work with a lot more detail. Um, you can read that publication to kind of get a sense of what it is we'll be talking about in some ways. Obviously the assumptions are different, the data is different, but it'll give you a good sense of sort of what to expect in the future for our detailed peer-reviewed publication in some ways. Yeah. And that and that really it sounds like contributed to some of the mindset, both in terms of collaborating with health, but thinking about NPV because it's a measure that matters to so many pharma operators. Their organizations are used to thinking about net present value when they're thinking about um, the investments that they wish to make. That's exactly right. And you probably know that from your Pfizer days, that that's how it's decided what to spend money on, right? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, two, two notes on that, right? So yes, in terms of NPV, and yes, in terms of that city paper that you're referencing that had uh, Bray Patrick Lake and so many other great people working together on using NPV was a great approach for it. It certainly helped a lot of operators in the development organization in you know, resonating and connecting on why in that case, patient input and insight was more than a nice to have. And exactly. so I can certainly see why that mindset uh, resonated here. 
Um, Andrew, Pamela set you Pam set you up as being the uh, the old guy in the room uh, <laughs> who was around for why this research. Do you have any other thought or perspective on why pursue this as a research question? What in your mind were you hoping to change in the environment as a result of getting this answer? Yeah, it was it was an interesting um, discussion point when we started this this research off. We started talking about Tufts about the, the kind of projects that we could look at and what we might want to measure and what we what we might want as the the kind of the the, the end the end goal of this. What did we want to show? Um, I think you know from from all the the, the the DTRA, the TGF conversations, all those parts that I've been part of, I think we're all very aware and comfortable that there is an ethical, medical and scientific benefit to doing decentralized trials. I'm not sure that that's kind of anything that's really up for question anymore. We all know that that's the case. We know that the trials are better for patients, they're more engaged, we have a site burden is reduced, all these kind of things that are all positives. Um, but we also know that, you know, we live um, in a world and nothing really greases the wheels of, of change more than knowing that something actually carries a financial incentive or a financial benefit to, to, to doing that. So, you know, for, for all of us that are working as part of technology companies and, and looking to make sure that, you know, companies adopt our technologies and also to all of the people that are working within, you know, digital health and, and digital innovation groups within pharma companies who are wanting to get their internal people to, to, to adopt this kind of technology and this kind of approach um, to, to conducting clinical trials. That was really what drove the selection of, of net present value value as the thing we wanted to show a benefit on because we we knew that that was Firstly, it was the, the the one thing that was missing at this point in time from from research into decentralized trials. We we know that it you know speed to recruitment. We know that patient burden is improved. All these kind of things we know, but we didn't know for certain that it had a benefit on the, the financial um, side of things as well. So that it was the fact that that it was a it was a gap. It was a missing piece of research, um, but also that it was a really important one to to try and expedite the uptake of decentralized practices into. Um, into into clinical research and clinical development um, programs. So that those were kind of the, the two the two discussion points we started off um, with to make this a hopefully a really valuable piece of research that um, that everyone can gain some benefit from. Great background, great background, Amir. I have to imagine this uh, this resonates with you in terms of thinking about sustainability of decentralized within organizations and being able to show uh, some sort of overall financial impact. Absolutely, and I think this is uh, shows. I'm, I'm really pleased that the you know Tufts Amenable were able to kind of work on this, and obviously, we are looking at DTRA to also be sort of developing further evidence right around this and other areas. Absolutely, I think to contextualize that, you know, I think it's important for us to have data rather than anecdote from any of the stakeholders in the environment that have uh, experiences to be able to aggregate and publish. Um, in terms of the methodologies and their results. And then for us through groups like DTRA to be able to uh, work laterally across organizations and find additional channels for us to aggregate data that can help demonstrate the impact of decentralized. And as uh, Mir mentioned, for those that may not be familiar, that is one of the uh, initiatives within DTRA is around our ability to continue to aggregate insights uh, that can help us build and maintain confidence across the community, whether around data integrity, patient safety, diversity, or whatever those attributes may be. Um, to, to show off at my mad new clubhouse skills, I did drop a link uh, at the top of your screen to the uh, city NPV, some of their work 
that uh, Pam was mentioning from the past based on patient insights. But now we'll kind of lean in uh, on how that work, I guess, in her mind uh, and in, in, uh, you know, in mine as well, really helps us to think about NPV as an interesting measuring tool for helping to influence change and stickiness in our space. Pam, can, can you share, or Andrew, uh, I'll, I'll leave this up to you. So the work that you did here, uh, I know that you, it sounds like there's still a publication that's in the works. Uh, this is kind of like a, a, a preview, is that right? That is, that is right. So this work um, took the majority of a year. Um, you know, we, we had the opportunity to look at some of the background, like Excel files and their like, I don't know how Joe gets, makes heads or tails out of it, but they're really huge financial modeling that is behind um, the work that we did. So we, we just realized these results um, in the last month or so, and we were trying to figure out how to communicate it. And we are working on a peer-reviewed publications. People that have done this know that this takes a while to put that put that together to get to an article like the one you linked, and that is very impressive, you could link that. Um, and um, what we did not want to do is just have to wait for that. So we decided to preview high-level findings to sort of set this so that people could start thinking about that. And then when the paper came out, more detail would be available. So we, we, we decided that, um, you know, and we didn't want to jeopardize a peer-reviewed publication, like I, I said, the one, you know, there is a, that is sort of objective data that people can look at. So we just uh, felt compelled to um, provide the detail on what we found, uh, provide high level, um, you know, high levels details of what we found and that basically, you know, that the financial modeling found that there are substantial net present benefit to sponsors when you deploy DCTs during clinical development of new drugs and biotech compounds. Yeah. So for those that may not be familiar again, if, if NPV is, is new for them, and I know you're sharing that um, a little bit of context on why NPV, can you help um, if I'm if I'm new to thinking about that term in, in sort of plain speak, what does that mean to me as an operator? What sh how, how can I start to um, interpret some of these findings for me? So um, when you look at, and, and when you say operator, I imagine you mean a sponsor determining how to set up their clinical trial. Exactly. Um, Maybe may okay. I'm a development okay. organization leader or a study team leader, um, NPV. You know, maybe I'm familiar with it from thinking about portfolio management, or maybe I'm just focused on my own studies. Um, how can how should I start to interpret these results for uh, uh, when we're thinking about NPV in decentralized that you're starting to look at here? Yeah. So um, to go back to a sort of a definition of expected net present value is sort of a common technique that integrates key business drivers of cost, time, revenue, and risk into a summary metric for st project strategy and portfolio decisions. So that's how people, CFOs of the world, business leaders, make an assessment of what to spend their money on. And it is um, sort of a, a, because we don't always, after a phase two study, you wouldn't be able to assess success 
regulatorily because you might not know whether that drug actually will make it into phase three um, the way you think it is. So you need to come up with a set of assumptions that you have that if I invest X amount of money in my drug right now, I expect this drug to be this effective in this therapeutic indication um, because of the market, we think we will be able to charge X amount of dollars and to sort of calculate and then uh, make an assessment of the success of your program going forward. So you need to recalculate next expected net present values at like F at phase two and then again at phase three, which is why we have the two different ones because the calculations are slightly different because if you've gone to phase two, there's a, a portion of the risk you can do reduce, so to speak. So that's why um, that's the, the process we took. It kind of creates a process for determining the success of a product down the road. But the um, but the DCT story here isn't so much that decentralized is altering the success of the of the development program. It looks like the the milestones that you were uh, focusing on were um, trial duration, screen failure. Right. It's a time amendment. and cost assessment in this case. Yeah. But the, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a time and cost. So the time of doing things um, a little bit quicker and then and, and we we made a very. I would say conservative assumption that you could reduce clinical cycle times by one to three months. Um, so it's a, a modest reduction in time, a modest reduction in screen failure, and a, like fewer protocol amendments, all things we know. So the cycle times is a time metric, obviously. Screen failures and amendments are an expense. We all know from previous Tufts work that every amendment um, comes with a serious amount of dollars, and those dollars are different um, in phase two as phase three. So, yeah. Interesting. And the work here was based on actuals from, um, it looks like uh, 150 plus uh, studies uh, so far. So, the work was based on a set of assumptions the, the assumptions on um, cycle times, screen failures, and protocol amendments. And then data from Medible, yes. Mm -hmm. Amir, any uh, any questions on your mind here? No, I think certainly uh, if anyone in the audience uh, has questions or comments as we go through this, we welcome anyone to join us on stage. But uh, so far, I think that, that was a good explanation of NPV, absolutely. Fabulous. So uh, as uh, Amir was mentioning, let's... Uh, Open up the room, open up the floor. If you have a question on your mind, feel free to uh, raise your hand and, and join us up here on the stage while folks are doing that. Pam, I'm curious in your mind, um, what happens next? Where does, uh, where does this work go next? I know aside from working on the publication, is this the first in a series? Do you think that this sets up other questions that you'd like to further unpack and explore? So this is um, initial work. Um, I'm not exactly sure what the next steps are, but one of the things I'd say is even with the city work, we ended up as more knowledge became available about the impact of DCTs on these three assumptions that we have, I mean, providing data towards that would help us better understand, even like refine um, you know, what the net present value could be in the future. I think what I'm hoping for too is um, that 
we will come together and share more of this information. Um, you know, when I've, and this is data around investment in clinical trials. I would also say that we need, I mean, I think we all kind of know, and I'll put no in air quotes that, you know, DCTs are a better experience for patients. You know, they can participate where they are. They might, um, you know, their, their data quality needs to be assessed still. So I think what we need to do is we, we have all these things that we kind of know. I think we need a lot more answers, increased diversity. I think we really hope that they will increase diversity. We want to make sure we don't only speak to the digitally enabled and we increase diversity there. We want to increase diversity, not just in race and um, ethnical, ethnical, ethnical ways, but also in rural and urban, um, you know, economic stratifications of the population. So we kind of know that these things are probably all happening. We really, we really need numbers around those. And so, and I know you, you're doing a lot of work with defining some of those KPIs and then providing a, a system to create numbers where I feel like we're still getting a lot of, you know, are you going to use more DCTs next year? Yes. You know, kind of data around this space. Um, and I know there's a lot of people working on it. So I'm excited to be in this space and, and really bring that quilt of all the things we need. We probably need also best practices around, you know, cause what used to a, an IRB evaluating a decentralized clinical trial, that's a different type of evaluation than what they're used to. So what can we do to make that ethical oversight a little bit clearer? How can we help regulators feel comfortable with the guidance? Because we're all asking for more regulatory guidance, but we, you know, it would help if we had data so that they feel comfortable too, and then we can get more, more guidance. So it's sort of this, everybody has to play a role in bringing that all together, I think. Everybody does. I completely agree there. If you are just joining us here, it is uh, the bottom of the hour, wherever you may be in the world. Um, welcome to the Decentralized Trials Club here on Clubhouse. TGIF DCT is where we gather every Friday from 12 to 1 Eastern Time, 9 to 10 Pacific. We cover a range of different topics related to decentralized clinical trials and our ability to improve access for research participation around the world. Um, if you have a topic you'd like to explore, uh, let Amir and myself know so we can get you on our schedule. Um, We're always receptive to ideas as well as to folks like Pamela and Andrew who have stepped forward this week to help co-host and facilitate this discussion on today's topic, which is around our ability to measure the ROI, or in this case, the net present value associated with decentralized trials. And it sets up some really good conversation for us to think about other research questions that will be important for us as we all want to make this space sustainable and generate the right evidence that can help support that business case internally. Uh, we have a couple of folks that have already raised their hands and are here on the stage. We'll turn to them next. But for you in the audience, remember you have that little hand wavy icon down at the bottom to raise your hand. If you have a question, idea, or perspective that you'd like to add to the conversation, go ahead, tap that button. We'll pull you up here on the stage and you can join right in. With that in mind, I'd like to welcome Upinder up to the stage and uh, thank you for joining us. Upinder, for those that don't know you, please feel free to introduce, reintroduce yourself 
and share the question or perspective on your mind. Thank you, Craig. Hi. Um, so, hi. My name is Yupinda, and I work with uh, Bayer Pharmaceuticals. Um, um, I, I actually want to sort of congratulate the folks at Medible because I think this is the first set of meaningful uh, data that I've actually seen on on DCT. There's been a lot of talk, uh, uh, and there's been a lot of um, uh, assumptions. And I mean, certainly within Bayer, we've we've looked at this heavily, and uh, you know, we we always knew that bringing in the recruitment timelines was going to have value, uh, you know, and any time you can reduce the timelines on, on, on the development cycle, looking at kind of what the potential peak sales are, I mean, you, you know, you, you, you can have, you know, quite significant benefit. Um, but I think um, the work being done, uh, I think um, Andrew possibly said it, this is, this is the start, I think. I mean, there, there's certainly a lot more things that could be quantified and looked at. I mean, um, Certainly, we haven't looked at, the, you know, th there's things like, you know, could DCT reduce patient dropouts on the study? Um, you know, uh, what about the data now? You know, because potentially with, as you start introducing things like uh, digital biomarkers, wearables, etc., you know, you're bringing in a lot more data earlier, quicker. It's a lot more accessible. So could you make decisions a lot more quicker? Could you then, um, rather than having to do uh, a database lock, it's like, six months or, or nine months or, or, or a year, you're potentially able to access the, the data a lot quicker and review that and make decisions quicker. Um, I also think that there's um, things that can be looked at in terms of when we start getting to the digital biomarker realms and, and the wearables, and then uh, looking at the fact that you don't, the patients don't potentially have to go to a site to get an intrusive um, procedure like a blood draw done. And whereas, um, you know, if, if you have to measure uh, um, an item, I don't know, like fatigue, and that can only be done via uh, a B12 or iron deficiency in blood, and you can do the fatigue measurement via wearable, that again is potential savings there as well. So I think there's a, a lot of things to come. I think these are things that people are still learning and developing. Um, I, I also think that this exercise is, will, it'd be good to see where we are in the next 18 months as we start learning more and more and as we start sort of, you know, looking to do more and more as well with, with respect to, to DCT. But uh, I think this is a, a very good start. And this is Yupinder. I'm, I'm, I'm done talking. Thanks as always, Yupinder, for the perspective. Andrew, did you have a thought or, or comment? Yeah, I mean, thank you, Yupinder, for, the, for the, those comments there. I think you, you've hit on so much of what we want to do next and, and to take this research to kind of the, the, the next level and, and start looking. Obviously, as Pam mentioned, when we were looking at some of the um, uh, the assumptions that we were putting into this, we were being a little conservative with with some of the, the numbers here. Um, obviously, one of the, the key items here is that as we as an industry get more and um, uh, we get you know, better at deploying DCTs, we start to understand a little bit more about the, the best ways to deploy the technology, the best way to uh, construct protocols to take advantage of the things that we can do within DCTs, like you mentioned, looking at things like digital biomarkers. Um, can we potentially extract data quicker? Can we get to, um, obviously, you know, one, one important point of, of any development program is if it's going to fail, you want it to fail as quickly as possible so you can divert that cash into, you know, that the molecules are, are going to go further. So all of these kind of things, I think, are really important things for us to start to take a look at um, and things that we've considered as, as kind of you know, the, the, the next stage 
of this um you know as, as we start to get more data in and, and we can be a little more accurate with some of the assumptions we make and and rather than being a little more conservative we can we can start to to, to push that needle a little bit as well so i think you, you pinned a picks up on a lot of the the really interesting areas that we can start to to take um this research into um and hopefully demonstrate even greater levels of, of net present value benefit yeah, what I wanted to say, I think that's exactly right. So when I joined Metabol, my the remit was to provide evidence and best practices. So I literally created this this PowerPoint for myself with all the things I want to find evidence around and ways to find that evidence. And so the one thing I can now complete is the net present value for for DCTs as one measure of thinking about return of investment. Um, there probably are going to be other ways to to think about that in the future. But um, I, I imagine that with DTRA, you will have a framework of things that need to be filled in um, so that we can create that, that trust in the system. Because I remember very clearly conversations I had with Amy Abernathy when she was at the FDA about, you know, when you introduce a technology, you have to make sure that the technology does not deteriorate anything that we know is going on in clinical trials right now. And, and let's not kid ourselves. We all know that clinical trials right now are not like perfect either. So um, I think in some cases we will do better. In some cases we will do the same, uh, but clinical trials right now have risk in it. We we're just a little more aware of what that risk is right now. So. It's uh, it's uh, and I and I this is Craig. I completely appreciate that call out to uh, Dr. Amy Abernathy and you know her constant reminders for us all that you know these ideas, these new opportunities are fabulous. We need to keep generating this evidence of impact, whether it's around data integrity, patient safety, or otherwise. Um, and keep that in mind for all regulators around the world to be able to um, sustain these changes in their eyes and be able to make this change sustained then uh, in the eyes of, um, of research sponsors, sites, and the entire community. Um, fabulous. Let's turn over to our friend Jane Miles. Jane, if there's somebody out there that doesn't know you, feel free to introduce yourself, share your question or perspective. Hey, good morning. I'm here in California. It's winter, which means it's sunny. Hooray. Um, thanks for inviting me up to the stage. And first, I want to say hi, Pam and Andrew. Always delighted to hear from you and always love to learn from you. So thank you so much for doing this important work. I completely agree with you, Pinder's comments. And now I have a question. Um, some of you know me. I'm the pragmatist. Uh, so methodologically, I'm really curious what elements constituted DCT in your definition of these 150 studies. It does link a little bit to the work of DTRA, where we have a team working on glossary and definitions for industry. And it also plays into some of the skepticism I hear, or maybe it's not skepticism, it's... Mm, curiosity waiting for evidence because some trials that include a single element like ECOA, which has been used for a long time, are now being classified as DCTs. So can you help us understand what was the nature of the 150 studies and can you give us an estimate of the proportion where a, a decentralized platform with multiple 
solutions was used? This is Jane, and thank you for taking my question. Yeah, well, I'm going to have to take your question and punt it until um, <laughs> we have uh, the, the, the research coming out. But I, I think it's a good question and some of the things that we will be addressed. The methodology will obviously be described in detail as far as how we came up with uh, with uh, what we, I say we royally, because it was really Joe, Damasi, and and Ken, obviously, how, how the ENPV was calculated and how they did it. So, Andrew, do you want to? I think that's about the, and I, I'm really sorry. I think it's a great question. Um, I, I knew we were going to get questions like that, that we were not going to be able to answer. And I told Craig like that, that in advance too, but um, it's a good question to have. We have taken note of it and we'll make sure that, um, well, you know, it was going to be addressed in the paper anyway. Andrew, anything else? Or it's one that we have to punt, I think. Yeah, I, I would agree, Pam. Obviously, we, we don't want to do anything to um, to kind of uh, cause problems with, with the journal publications, things like that. But um, um, Jane, it's a great question and um, great to be talking to you again as well. So, uh, Jane, uh, is patience okay here? What do you think? Oh, of course. And of course, I'll be happy to wait for the publication. Please don't hear my question as being skeptical. I'm looking for evidence so I can proselytize your message. That's all. No, no, we get it. We, we get it. And, and again, we appreciate it. Um, yeah. So. Perfect. Yeah. And I guess, uh, Pam, the, um, I, I guess the one thing we can say in response to that, Jane, is that it's, it's taken from a very broad spectrum of decentralized trials. Um, from, you know, we, we've got a lot of trials that sit in that 150 across the, 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 the broad range of, of, of decentralized trials. So it, it's, it's taken from a, a wide mix. Great. So maybe that's just a placeholder. Make sure you go to DTA. That's what I'm thinking. Very good. And Pamela did warn me beforehand that there may be some questions that do get uh, put in a parking lot for when the uh, final paper does get released. I'm sure uh, some of these questions will uh, make it into uh, uh, make it right into there and we'll have to have a follow up there. Uh, Nelson, always good to see you, my friend. Introduce yourself for anyone who might not know you. Share your question or perspective. Hey, thanks, Craig. Uh, I'm Nelson Rutrick. I own uh, a couple of brick and mortar sites in the Boston, Massachusetts area. Um, and I've been in the industry for about 10 years. I'm a lawyer uh, and uh, have been following a lot of the data and publications on DCTs. Um, I, uh, I sort of had a method methodological question. So I had one I wanted to ask a little bit less that I can ask now. Um, you know, the the real standard in drug development is, um, unless, other than when we're looking at rare, very, very rare diseases, is using um, trials with uh, controls when we compare two things to each other, as opposed to relying on an external or historical control. Um, so I, uh, and I'm really excited for when at some point in the next year, we're going to have some trials that pharma has, um, in one case I know of, decided to run a nearly identical trial 
one with loads of DCT elements, the other with very few DCT elements. And I was uh, wondering if, if you guys knew of any of what's out there, if you know if there's others maybe upcoming in that, in that vein. Just to, to make sure, hi Nelson, and thank you for that question. This is Pam. To make sure I understand what you're saying, are you talking about the trials at home effort? Where there is, is that what you're talking about? No, I, I'm talking about a Boringer Ingelheim trial with Science 37 that they're also doing entirely with brick and mortar sites, um, where they the trials look almost identical, have the same drug, the same inclusion exclusion almost. Um, that they're running simultaneously. I don't know if there's any other companies doing that with their phase two compounds, phase three potentially. Yeah. You know, I, I know that uh, Nelson, that um, prior to the pandemic, there were a few instances like this where maybe they weren't identical protocols being run, but uh, treating the decentralized site or that central site, I guess, as a, uh, as something of a sub-study so that they could constrain the analysis in different ways, um, both for comparisons, but also to carve things out if there was a substantial difference in the outcomes that were being seen in patients that were coming from the decentralized side as compared to otherwise. Um, I haven't seen too many studies like that lately. Pamela, I don't know if you or Amir, if you have in this in that vein. So I can go first. So I would say, uh, first of all, I really appreciate Nelson's question. So it's, it's a very clear question to me. And I would agree with Nelson that ideally you will have a, um, you know, research methodology where you really are comparing at the same temporal time, you know, two different methodologies and identical protocols. I'm very familiar with the programs that Nelson mentioned. And I'm hoping that they will also look at issues, uh, you know, to do with the ROI as well as obviously the actual outcomes of the study. So I think you're correct that it's really useful to have programs like that. And frankly, it's extremely rare for us to be able to have a double blind study in methodology, right? It doesn't really happen very often. So the fact that BI is doing that is really interesting. And I think we're, I'm really looking forward to seeing how that, you know, looks like. Uh, yeah, they deserve to be commended for it. Uh, they're the, I don't know of anyone else doing it with real money on the line. Um, you know, it's like picking two different CROs to run two different, two identical phase three trials. You know, very, very few companies would do that. Absolutely. So have, yeah. I'm yeah. sorry, go ahead. I was just going to acknowledge Vikas, our friend who's running that program. And I agree, it's always good to see when people are willing to make that investment. Go ahead, Pam. So yeah, I think we've had some of those discussions with people, um, with our customers to see you know, if we could pick apart one element and sort of do it one by one, because if you do a multiple elements then it becomes also the confounding of what was the thing that helped the most, but gets a little complicated. But I do wanna bring everybody sort of, there is a really good website and there's a really good project talking about, the uh, website talking about the project, but um, the Innovative Medicines Agency in Europe, and Craig, you and I were part of that um, board at some point to sort of, help think through what they could do, has a project called Trials at Home. 
And one of their deliverables is a pilot study where they're randomizing methodology, like you said, Amir, it's rare and few between in our space. And I wish we sometimes could have a little bit more of that because methodology also needs evidence. Like this is a better methodology than that um, needs, needs evidence. But Trials at Home has created a clinical trial in which they are going to compare head on a, a brick and mortar um, clinical trial and a um, decentralized approach. There's obviously not real mo like money on the line in the way that a drug company or a pharma company would have that and they're actually doing that work on their own molecule, but they are trying to sort of help um, the industry forward by doing it on a, on a valid question and having the clinical, it's a valid clinical question that needs to be answered. And they're funding a clinical trial where they will be going head to head. Craig, I don't know if you can have more detail on that because I know you were involved in that as well. I've I've started, I was a little, I haven't been as involved lately since I moved to Medible. So I don't know if you've had any other updates. Yeah, we actually were uh, fortunate to have Kim Hawkins from uh, Sanofi at the DTRA annual meeting, sharing a bit on that work at a uh, at a panel, and it is actually using a Sanofi. I believe it's using a Sanofi drug, uh, so it is using a a diabetes um, medication in the context of of that study, which hopefully will uh, continue down that path, Nelson, that you're raising of our ability to generate comparative data, understanding this. Upinder, are you involved in that one? Uh, no, but I did want to add, so I, I'm not actually involved. Um, I have a few colleagues involved in that project, but uh, it is it is a Sanofi product being used. It is diabetes. Um, they're actually going to have three arms on that. So there's going to be a traditional brick and mortar sites involved. They're going to have hybrid visits where some visits will be done remotely. And they're all gonna, then they're also going to have third arm, which will be completely virtual. So I think, as Pavel mentioned, it's going to be a really nice uh, study actually putting into uh, three different options for the patients and seeing how, the, how they fare against each other. Oh. Yeah, one thing to remember, I think, is that if, if whatever the results are in this particular situation in um, diabetes, clearly, that doesn't mean that you could go to a direct to patient trial on any old, you know, future clinical trial either. The, the idea still remains, I think, that in some trials, you know, you just need to be fit for purpose with your clinical trial and do the right thing for that trial. And I personally um, remember uh, calling Michelle before I joined Medable and I was like, hold on a second, you, you're still working with sites, right? This is not only direct to, to patient trials because I'm not sure I'd be in for that. So, cause I think there is going to be a place for trials or community-based closer to the to the patient's clinical research sites um, going forward. I think we just really need to make sure that everything doesn't work everywhere um, and, and, and really think through what the elements are that make the most sense in the therapeutic area, in the indication with the patients, um, with the patients involved, so. Great point, Pamela. Uh, just before we move on from Nelson on to Aaron, uh, two points. You know, um, about over my chair, my chair, we did a whole initiative around looking at the evidence base for methodology in my area of neuroscience and taking a to it. And as expected, it was extremely sad that if you would take take a 
Cochrane approach to level of evidence for what we do in methodology. We have you know level four kind of level of um, evidence. So it's it's really a very important point to seeing these initiatives like the IMI etc., where we truly are taking uh, a methodological route to assessing methodology. This has not been something commonly done due to expense and all, all the other factors you can think of. But I just want to point out that it would be really fantastic if we do have truly scientific approaches in different approaches, for sure. And the last thing, Nelson, before you, we move on to Aaron, introduce uh, yourself, you usually do as, you know, being a owner of a couple of brick-and-mortar sites. Uh, at what point are you going to say you're going to be that you own a couple of hybrid sites? I'm just teasing you. Yeah, well, <laughs> I think it sort of depends on how everybody defines it. If I go off your definition, I should start saying it now, I think. Yeah. Well, I know you're always at the cutting edge, so I thought I'd just mention that. So maybe we can next, I know we only have seven minutes left, so let's move on to Erin and welcome, and what's your question or point? Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for this topic. It's really interesting, um, and I really appreciate the chance to learn more about it. I'm wondering, um, from sort of my personal experience with my own child um, and also my professional experience interviewing patients around the world about their experiences with clinical trials, how can we measure or how did you measure sort of the increase in actual recruitment and enrollment? That you get that or hopefully that we would get by offering the so Aaron, you're breaking up quite badly was that measured like in the so Aaron, you were breaking thing? up quite bad there i don't know pamela can you I'm hear Aaron the question i did not i heard how can you measure and then nothing so i'm not sure what i what i or i andrew would be answering could you repeat that real quick It sounds like we're having some trouble with Erin. I think her question was about the method for measuring uh, patient recruitment yeah, when we're yeah, when we're uh, looking uh, at some uh, different uh, aggregate analyses. Yeah, Erin, you're breaking up. We really uh, can't uh, hear. Uh, uh, so I'm um, I'm gonna um, put Erin back on mute. Uh, I think that's not really working for us here. Erin, um, if we get a better signal, let us know. Andrew, uh, because I think her question was around patient recruitment and how are you mm. measuring it. Uh, did you have any uh, quick perspective on that theme? Yeah, it was it was actually broader. I mean, obviously, all of this will come out in, in the methodology when we we, we released the, the, the full paper. Um, but what we were measuring was was kind of cycle time. So it was really from the the point of initiating the trial all the way through until the point of um, you know kind of data being available and the trial being analyzed. So recruitment is obviously a part of that, but we're really looking at the entire cycle time um, because obviously from, from a decentralized trial perspective, you've got potentially the, the, the quicker recruitment, you've then potentially got the, the lower dropout, so you get the data quicker and then you can then potentially lock the database earlier and get the analysis out quicker. So it, it's the entirety of that process, not just focused on recruiting faster. Um, it's really getting the, the point at which you can get access to data. Thank you so much, Andrew. Aaron, I'm so sorry we, we had trouble hearing you there. Indira, we have a, a, just a couple of minutes left, um, but please introduce yourself for the, uh, for the audience, share your question or perspective. 
Um, hello, everyone. Thank you for getting me on the stage, and uh, I hope you can hear me clearly. Um, um, my name is Indira Mysore. My background is uh, technology. Uh, my last position was with Huffman La Roche um, on the technology space in the last two years, and I have been involved in uh, solution development uh, in clinical trial space in the startup um, leadership role. My question really is from a research perspective on the outset, were there any indications um, what kind of benefits were in the direction in terms of coming from technology versus um, sheer process improvement um, in the DCT space? And then also from a risk perspective, because DCT in general tend to kind of broaden the network partners that can come into the ecosystem to contribute because sheer nature of the decentralized clinical trial. Um, did that cause any additional risk to offset the return on the investment aspect? These are really the two aspects of the questions that I have, and I will just go on mute. Thank you for letting me ask. So I'm thinking a little bit, I think what you're asking is um, the level of detail we cannot discuss, but I also want to remind, want to sort of say that when we, when we, again, Joe and Ken calculated the expected and present value, they have numbers around the assumptions we had made, dollar numbers around the assumptions we had made about decreased cycle times, decreased screen failures, and decreased number of less um, amendments. So uh, I'm not sure that um, I could answer that anyway, but that that if that will come out in the paper, I think. Andrew, do you have any other thoughts on that? And not really. I mean, obviously, as as you said, um, you know, expected net prime net present value carries um, in the calculations and an assessment of, of kind of risk built into it. So Joe would right. be far more competent in explaining exactly how that works. Um, it's one of the most complicated spreadsheet calculations I think I've seen. Um, so yeah, it, it'll, I think a lot more detail will come out on, on that side of things in the, um, uh, in the paper when it's, when it's released in full. I will say that in the paper that um, Craig connected here in uh, Clubhouse, the the risk the risk was discussed a little bit around patient engagement so that can maybe give you a sense of how we might talk about risk for this as well not that it's going to completely carry over but it'll give you a sense of of you know how risk comes in as a as it, it risk is risk becomes a numerical dollar amount in these calculations right so that that's really their their forte yeah Thank you so much, uh, Pamela and Andrew. Robin, I know uh, we, I, I thought maybe we could try to squeeze you in before the top of the hour, but we do commit to wrapping things up at the top of the hour. So hopefully you can join us next Friday and um, and, and we can pull you up here sooner. Uh, but I apologize, we are at the, the end of this time slot. Amir, any uh, final closing thoughts? Uh, really grateful to both um, Pam and Andrew for coming to do a preview of the paper that's coming out and everyone who stepped up to ask questions and uh, wishing everyone a fantastic weekend. Much the same. Thank you. 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 Thank